on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. James Ungurianu about the conflict thesis. So we cover topics like what is this conflict thesis? Does religion suppress science? And why were Calvinists more willing to accept Darwinism than liberal Protestantism? Or is this true at all? And if the conflict's thesis isn't actually ubiquitous as we've been taught, why does it have such staying power? And why are there seemingly numerous examples of those in evangelicalism that gave up their faith because of it? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcasts on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. So I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brendan Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do with that with particular virtues in mind. And the ones that we've singled out and really try to focus on are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think all of them are needed. We think different segments of our tribe and other tribes need some more than others, but we want to just, I guess really focus on this cheerfulness, this charity, this curiosity, because I think those are sort of a a healthy posture in today's climate. Now, for today's episode, I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm probably going to say your name wrong, but I'm going to try my best at it. So we have Dr. James Unguriano. How how close am I? No, I blew... uh, Wrong. Brandon, (laughs) very close. You know, I asked beforehand, and I still failed, so... um, I'm not very good with names, apparently, but I'm looking forward to this because he's got this new book. Uh, well, I guess it's not super new anymore. You've got multiple books that have either come out since then or you've got contracts on that I've seen. Uh, the one we're going to talk about today is called Science, Religion, and the Protestant Tradition, Retracing the Origins of Conflict. And I got to say, just from a purely uh, aesthetic standpoint, if you go and look this up on Amazon, I think the cover is just beautiful. Um not many books do I look at and say, wow, that's a good looking cover. And I think this one, you, they nailed it. So I think just for the co- cover yeah. alone, you should go buy the book. But I, I really think the book is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> so I think all of all the stuff that we're going to get to talk about today, super, super interesting. So before we do that, um, why don't you, I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with you. Um, so give us, you know, a little bit of background, think 30 to 60 seconds on, on who you are, what you're doing. and, and then after that, kind of what made you interested in this particular topic uh, to do to dedicate so much research to it? Okay, great. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jordan and, and Brandon, for having me on. I'm excited to be on. Um, so currently, I'm an uh, upper school humanities teacher at a uh, uh, classical Christian academy in, in California. Um, the Lord had kind of called me out there from Madison, Wisconsin. So it was quite a quite a journey uh, to make it here. Um, but before that, I had completed my PhD at the University of Queensland in Australia um, under uh, Peter Harrison, well-known uh, historian of science and religion there. Uh, before that, I completed a uh, MA in church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, had great supervisors there. Started with uh, Kevin Van Hooser, and then uh, once I switched over into the MA in Church History, it was Scott Manich and John Woodbridge, and they were they're all great guys and uh, very supportive and caring. 
And before that, I actually grew up in Northern California, ended up going to uh, University of California, Davis for uh, a double bachelor's in philosophy and religious studies. And I've always been interested, um, ever since I became a Christian in my late 20, in my early 20s, I've been interested in the relationship between science and religion. And I just had professors, both at Davis and at Trinity and then uh, at Queensland, that were also very interested in the history of science and religion. And it's kind of a funny story. I, I wanted to write my dissertation on uh, the narratives of the Enlightenment uh, among the, the French philosophs. Uh, when I met Peter Harrison, he, he told me, why don't you write about these guys, uh, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White? There hasn't been uh, any kind of text uh, really devoted on who they are, where did they come from, why they argued the way they did. So it was, in a way, it was kind of handed to me by my, my uh, PhD supervisor, Peter Harrison. Maybe a, a good place for us to start here is just for you to lay out for the listeners what the conflict thesis is, because I think some of the listeners are going to be familiar with what that is, but that, a lot of them may not know it at all what that is. So just maybe define that for us. Sure, yeah. In, in a nutshell, the the conflict thesis is the idea that science and religion are fundamentally in, in conflict or at odds or always have been, always will be. This is a history of war. And in that sense, it is a historical claim. It is a historical argument. It's an argument from history, right? Most proponents of the conflict thesis maintain if you look back in history, particularly Christian history, but not exclusively Christian history. If you look back in history at every moment in the advance of science or new learning or progress, religion has attempted to oppose, uh, oppress, um, deny that, that progress. We have notions like Christianity was the re responsible for the demise of ancient Greek science. Um, another position is that the medieval period was an age of intellectual darkness, the so-called dark ages uh, that Galileo was imprisoned and tortured for advancing uh, Copernicus's theory, uh, so-called a scientific revolution of the 17th century, a liberated science from, from religion, or at least started the process, or that Christian theologians opposed Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and so on. So the list is really kind of endless. Um, but as many of your listeners might already be aware of, historians of science and religion have turned this narrative on its head. They have been rejecting kind of simplistic views of the relationship between science and religion for about 100 years or so. I mean, if you go back to 1920s, for example, English mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead already warned readers that, quote, although conflict between religion and science is what naturally occurs to our minds, the true facts of the case are very much more complex and refuse to be summarized in these simple terms, end quote. So since the 1980s, most historians have traced the origins of this view, the conflict thesis, to the 19th century, specifically to Anglo-American writers. So apparently it's a relatively recent idea. So in, in reading your book, I mean, it, you, it's really well written. Um, and one thing that I, I found really fascinating in reading it is, if I understood it correctly anyway, it seemed like 
Calvinists were more willing to accept Darwinism than liberal Protestants. So I guess my question is, is that true? And if it is, why is that the case? Yeah, the, the idea has become very popular, uh, very popular position among some scholars. Um, the Calvinists were more willing to accept Darwinism than, say, liberal liberal Protestants. That idea comes from uh, an author, James Moore. Uh, he published a book entitled Post-Darwinian Controversies. It first appeared in 1979. Uh, at the time, it was perhaps the most exhaustive, exhaustive treatment of Protestant reactions to Darwin's theory of evolution. Moore provocatively argued that Calvinists in particular were more willing to accept the outcome of Darwinism than liberal Protestants. He, his work made a significant impact on later historians and uh, studies by David Livingston, and John Roberts, and Ron Numbers, for instance. Um, and it continued to kind of just show the complexity of the relation, religious responses to Darwin. However, uh, Moore has since changed his mind on, on the idea. He's kind of corrected his previous views. Uh, those religiously conservative or theologically orthodox believers who embraced, uh, allegedly embraced the theory of evolution were not in fact embracing Darwin's version of it. Rather, they had embraced uh, kind of an evolutionary philosopher, Herbert Spencer's uh, version of kind of a directional, purposeful evolutionary process. Spencer, who was a scientific naturalist, left room for a higher being, an unknown God, as it were, uh, in his philosophy, is somehow directing evolution. And so this is totally different from Darwin's position, who disowned any kind of theism or kind of progressive teleological process in, in evolution. So what you see happening in, in the kind of religious reaction, the theological reaction to Darwin's ideas, is that they are mixing it with kind of a more purposeful, directional understanding of evolution as opposed to Darwin's uh, kind of original idea and what most evolutionary biologists, uh, under how they understand evolutionary theory today. So why is it that you think this conflict thesis uh, has seems to have staying power there? And if you just go on, on Twitter, you hear these deconstruction stories, and not to get too much into the deconstruction stuff, but a lot of people... I have seen just on the street level, you know, they would say they've abandoned their faith because religion is in conflict with science and they want to side with science. So why do you think that it has um, this power to, to kind of rip people away from from their faith uh, if, if it's, as you say, it's been proven to be false? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I think the, the conflict thesis continues to be powerful uh, is because it's never... It never was and still isn't about science and religion, these kind of abstract understandings of science and religion. And perhaps this is surprising, maybe even ironic to, to most people. But what I try to show in my book, it was always a conflict within the, a theological, it was a, a conflict within a theological discussion. It has a, a very, actually, it has a very long religious uh, Protestant pedigree, has a long Protestant history. So... A question that I think is just natural to ask at this point. I mean, you mentioned these guys, Draper and White, at the beginning. I mean, who who are these people? Because I imagine probably 95% of our listeners are like, 
who are, who are you talking about and why, why do they matter? Yeah, so these, these Anglo-American writers I, I spoke of earlier um, who are regularly blamed for constructing the conflict thesis were John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. Now, Draper and White are big figures within historical studies of science and religion, but not many people have, have heard of them outside that specialty. So let me, let me say a few things about them. Um, Draper was actually born in England. His father was an itinerant Wesleyan minister. Interesting story behind his father's vocation. Draper's dad was raised Catholic. And during a local revival meeting, he and some of his friends went to the meeting with the intent of mocking the revivalists. Uh, but by the end of the meeting, Draper's dad had converted to, converted to Methodism. So at age 11, Draper, uh, the young Draper, was sent to a Methodist boarding school, um, presumably to follow in his father's footsteps and prepare him for the ministry. Um, but his father had very strong nonconformist opinions and had a penchant for scientific subjects like chemistry and astronomy. So it's no surprise, really, that his father sent the young Draper to study chemistry and medicine at the new uh, London University, which we now know as University of College London, which was kind of established, I think, in around 1826. Uh, unfortunately, Draper's father died almost as soon as he started his studies, um, but he was a very determined young man. He completed his certificate in chemistry and after that emigrated to the United States. He had extended family living in uh, a Virginia colony for some time at that point. He established himself very quickly as a leading scientist. He taught at a couple of different universities before becoming head of chemistry at New York University in 1837. Uh, he was also known for his photochemistry. Uh, he believed to be the first person to take a photograph of the human face. And that was his sister, Dorothy Catherine Draper. Um, he was also one of the earliest to practice astrophotography. He has kind of the earliest examples of uh, photography of the moon. Uh, Draper soon gave up chemistry and science in general for history. There's a very interesting uh, set of letters between him and Irish physicist John Tyndall, where he tells him that no one reads physics, but everybody reads history. So Draper was clearly trying to seek some kind of recognition beyond the sciences. And to some extent, he, he succeeded. Uh, of course, now he is most well-known, at least among specialists, for his history of the conflict between religion and science, a book that he published in 1874. In it, Draper claimed that the history of science was, quote, a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on the one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests on the other. Now, Andrew Dixon White was never a scientist. He was sort of a man of, of literature and philosophy. White was born in New York right around the time Draper and his family were making their way to America from England. White's parents believed he was destined for the pulpit. So again, you have these two figures who were once believed to become preachers. His father sent him to an Episcopalian college, uh, but White found the curriculum at the school uninspiring, to say the least. 
Now, White actually ran away and demanded to be sent to Yale College. He had something of a falling out with his father on this, but ultimately his father relented and sent him to Yale to study history and English literature. After college, White went on this grand three-year European tour, visiting places like Oxford and Cambridge, and studying in France and Berlin, kind of backpacking, exploring Switzerland, Austria, Italy, before coming back to the States to do postgraduate work at Yale. In 1857, at the remarkable age of 25, White was appointed history professor at the University of Michigan. Very jealous about that. At the outbreak of the Civil War, though, he resigned uh, his post and was unexpectedly nominated and elected for New York State Senate. It was during this time that White met Ezra Cornell, a Quaker who had made a fortune in the telegraph business, and together they founded Cornell University in Ithaca. White became its first president, but he was sort of an absentee president. He uh, had a number of diplomatic appointments, first in the Dominican Republic, then in Berlin and Russia, and eventually resigned his uh, presidency in 1885 to work exclusively on, on research and writing. Um, he even contemplated at one point running for the U.S. presidency, so White was very much a politically-minded educator. Now, before all that, though, he was known for his, quote, battlefields of science lecture in 1869. He delivered this at the Cooper Union Institute in New York. In this lecture, White traced, quote, the great sacred struggle for the liberty of science, and he reviewed one by one, the so-called battles fought in astronomy, chemistry, anatomy, geology. And he took this lecture and expanded it into a, a small book published in 1876 entitled The Warfare of Science. Very simple title. Then after resigning from Cornell, he spent the next couple of decades expanding this book even further, eventually turning into this two-volume masterpiece, a book titled A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, and he published that in 1896. Now, according to historians of science, Draper and White set the terms of the debate. Although few people cite them today, most who claim there is some kind of conflict, some sort of conflict between science and religion, usually follow one or more of the narratives set out in their books. So, Historians believe they have found the origins of this narrative, the conflict thesis, in the writings of Draper and White. Maybe now we can we can transition to uh, and, and drill down a little bit more deeper into your work and your contribution here. So why don't you tell us where you think the the conflict really lies? I think I might have just backed myself into a isn't that the title of a planet yeah, book? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, where yeah. where where the conflict actually is, if it's not where Draper and White, uh, or where historians of science have tried to say Draper and White placed the conflict. Yeah. You know, having having said all that, all that background in Draper White, uh, my work offers kind of a different perspective on them and kind of the nature of the conflict thesis. I kind of hinted at this earlier. I'm not attempting to. In fact, I'm not attempting to debunk their narratives. I think that's been done over and over again by many other historians of science and religion, and they've done really well. Um, but at the same time, I think this desire to debunk them 
has led to many kind of misrepresentations and misunderstandings of, of what they were trying to do. Um, I'm basically arguing that they're not guilty of the charges most historians of science and religion lay on them. I think we have, in fact, failed to understand Draper and White because, ironically, we have ignored what they actually said they were doing. Now, that doesn't mean what they argued in their books is correct, um, but the point here is to better understand what was happening historically at that point in time. We need to read their books as primary sources, kind of revealing the climate of thought, the climate of opinion. Uh, and uh, for I think for most historians, for whatever reason, have kind of misunderstood that. Um, and this has everything to do with the kind of the, the brand of Protestantism Draper and White followed. And here are, here's where things get really complicated and, and, and messy because neither liberal nor conservative Protestantism was monolithic, right? Think of them as kind of separate streams, perhaps connected by various outlets and inlets, branching out in every direction. So it's, it's very complicated to kind of parse through all of that. Draper, for example, actually advocated a return to a pure more rational Christianity. In his early lectures on chemistry to students, he sounds rather like a natural theologian. Draper spoke of the laws of nature, uh, how they've been designed and set in place by an almighty God, a creator, the great architect. These are words that Draper himself used. This kind of more rational, more reasonable Christianity comes from folks like Francis Bacon and the early members of the Royal Society of London, Later, you see English deists advocate for the same position, in addition to folks like John Locke and even Isaac Newton. All of them look back to the Protestant Reformation as a reformation not only of religion, but science, or what was back then was called natural philosophy. Draper also seemed to depend on historians like Edward Gibbon and his History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, but also mentions a work of German Lutheran church historians, Johann von Mosham, an English clergyman, Conyers Middleton, and, and others. So Draper, for his understanding of history, is relying on Protestant church historians for the most part. And Draper's history of the conflict was largely a condensed version of previously published work. Most importantly, Draper had published his history of the intellectual development of Europe in 1863. And here he makes a crucial distinction that most historians of science have either forgotten or, or ignored. You know, he's discussing in this section the so-called paganization of Christianity under Emperor Constantine. Draper distinguished between Christianity and ecclesiastical organizations. The former, he wrote, is a gift of God, that means Christianity is a gift of God, is what he's saying. But then he says the latter are the product of human exigencies and human invention and therefore open to criticism or, if need be, to condemnation. He argued that the paganization of Christianity had resulted in the tyranny of theology over thought and declared that those who had, I'm quoting Draper here, those who had known what religion was in the apostolic days might look with boundless surprise on what was now engrafted upon it and was passing under its name. 
even his notorious history of conflict under closer inspection, continues to make such distinctions. He argued that he would only consider the orthodox, or what he called the extremist views, and not the moderate ones. Uh, he expressed concern that traditionary faith was leading the so-called intelligent classes to give up on religious faith entirely. His, his narrative, in short, was intended to show that the decline of religious faith was a direct consequence of a politicized Christianity, not science. So two, two important, important points here about Draper. First, Draper's understanding of history, again, is taken mostly from Protestant historians. And second, that these Protestant historians predate the 19th century. Now, ultimately, it seems that Draper's hero was Unitarian minister and chemist Joseph Priestley. In one of his lectures, Draper tells students that, quote, we must not impute it to mental weakness that Priestley passed through so many religious beliefs before arriving at Unitarianism, but rather to the pursuit of truth, end quote. So Draper clearly was no atheist. Um, he looked back to the rational religion found among 17th and 18th century dissident intellectuals who viewed new knowledge as evidence of the creative power of God. In this sense, Draper can be firmly placed in this particular Protestant tradition. Now, White was in the same liberal Protestant tradition at Draper, but maybe in a different segment, a different course, if you will. White did not look to the past, but rather to contemporary conceptualizations or reconceptualizations of what religion is. Religion is found, White believed, in the moral conscience, intuition, sentiment. This definition of religion was, of course, not new at the time in the 19th century, kind of exemplified essential elements of the Romantic movement, which had become by the late 19th century sort of a central component of liberal Protestant thought. History showed, according to White, that, quote, interference with science and the supposed interest of religion, no matter how conscientious such interference may have been, has resulted in the direst evils be both for religion and science. So White believed by separating this thing called religion from this thing called theology, he could denounce that the most mistaken of all mistaken ideas, quote, was the conviction that religion and science are enemies. So White, while science has conquered dogmatic theology, White argued that it will go hand in hand with religion. And later in his autobiography, the whole point of his narrative, he said, was to strengthen religious teachers by enabling them to see some of the evils in the past, which for the sake of religion itself, they ought to guard against in the future, end quote. What's really interesting about White is that he loved Germany, right? He, he studied in Berlin for a time and he visited Wartburg Castle, where Luther was protected under Prince Frederick. In his diary, White wrote about how he sort of communed with the spirit of Luther while he was there. In Germany, he also studied under the great liberal Protestant thinkers Karl Ritter and Leopold von Ranke. Uh, he was also reading folks like uh, Gotthold Lessing and 
Johann Gerther, Frederick Schiller, and, and Schellemacher, another mediating German theologians, as some historians call them. So, so this movement, this mediating theology movement, was an attempt to reconcile Christianity with modernity. Lessing, for example, talked about the evolution of religion. He maintained that all faiths would one day lead to one truth. So no creed or dogma was complete or final. Christianity was this kind of ever-evolving thing like the rest of civilization. So White took this idea and made it his own. It became part of his worldview. And Schellemacher convinced him, moreover, that true religion not found in doctrine or books or dogma, but intuition, this, this feeling, this kind of inward witness, uh, dependency of the heart. So Draper and White were flowing down the same liberal Protestant stream, just in different areas, and kind of summarize uh, very succinctly their position. Draper followed a religion of the head, whereas White followed a religion of, of the heart. Uh, in other words, both Draper and White were trying to find possible ways to reconcile science and religion, not promote their conflict or warfare. And interestingly enough, many readers, many of their early readers, and, and you see this in private correspondence, but you also in periodical press, newspapers, magazines, academic journals in the late 19th century, they also recognized that Draper and White were seeking a reconciliation between science and religion. So what are the stories and myths that Protestants told each other, beginning with the Reformation, and then that end up part of the Draper and White thesis and story. So what is it that's that part of that, I guess, I don't know if the right word is a social imaginary almost, but what are the things that are kind of percolating yeah. up there? Yeah, you know, here's, here's the rub of all this. You know, their proposals, Draper and White, what they were proposing were not particularly new. What they, what they did was actually consolidate a number of narratives that were already in circulation, that were already commonplace, particularly particularly among Protestant, Protestant historians, Protestant theologians, men and women of science. The conflict they spoke of was kind of an internal one, one between contending Christian groups, in the sense that you have, you have the, the conflict between different Protestant traditions. In the one corner, you have the new theology of liberal Protestantism, which de-emphasized scripture, dogmatism, institutionalism, and the like. In the other corner, you have what Draper called traditionary faith, creeds, doctrines, orthodoxy, and more general, kind of a more conservative Protestantism. So if we if we return to the 16th century for a moment, we 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 witness sort of the inauguration of this 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 idea, this new vision of of history. In their critique of Rome, Protestant reformers initially proved their point through sola scriptura, only scripture, because it is God breathed, inspired. Only scripture is an errant, sufficient, the final authority for the church. But in their attempt to defend such Protestant principles, reformers were compelled to explain them by reference to the doctrines and practices of the early church. And in so doing, needed to trace when and how the church lost its ways. Um, 
this became this becomes as i said earlier a historical argument if you're going to take this position you have to argue through history. So as the struggle between the, the forces of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation intensified, Protestants gradually came to appreciate more and more the study of history and its possible uses and refuting the historical foundations of Rome and the papacy. You see this in Martin Luther, you see this in Philip Melanchthon and, and many other of the magisterial reformers. History as a weapon became particularly strong among English reformers like Robert Barnes, Miles Coverdale, John Bale, and of course John Fox and Richard Hooker. They all followed the new historiographical scheme, constructing this polemical, polemical narratives that supported the deep roots of their own Protestant faith. It wasn't long before Protestants also began using reason and science and history as a weapon against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but it must be emphasized that arguments directed at Catholics also appeared in disputes between contending Protestant groups. Hooker, Richard Hooker, for example, defended the Elizabethan religious settlement against the religious enthusiasm of the Puritans by emphasizing a more reasonable approach to Scripture. Francis Bacon and later members of the Royal Society did the same thing with the new science. A more rational, more reasonable Christianity begins to emerge against the religious enthusiasts like the, like the Puritans and other similar groups. And you see this in the writings of, <clears throat> for example, the Cambridge Platonists. It's kind of a loose-knit group of divines that included men like Benjamin Witchcott, Henry Moore, Ralph Cudworth, and, and many others. The Cambridge Platonists advocated that the spirit of man is reason. Human reason is the candle of the Lord, they often said. Uh, what it means to be made in the image of God. For the Cambridge Platonists, human reason is the very voice of God, and many of them argue to go against reason is to go against God. So whatever the differences between them, the Cambridge Platonists were united in pursuing the reformation of religion along more of these kind of rationalistic lines. Now the ideas, now the ideas in, in the writings of the Cambridge Platonists formed a vital link with subsequent developments in English Protestant thought. You have numerous scholars, numerous scholars have noted the close association between the Cambridge Platonists and the Latitudinarian divines. Some of them were Latitudinarian divines, but they all kind of sought to minimize doctrinal discord. You have the religious wars going on and terrible bloodshed happening. But they sought to minimize doctrinal discord by emphasizing Again, human reason and understanding revelation. Divines like William Chillingworth and, and Edward Stillingfleet all considered their rational theology both a defense against atheism and a deliberate attempt at integrating the new science with traditional religious thought. So in short, what began as anti-Catholic polemic by the reformers using history and reason and science or natural philosophy as a weapon 
against so-called Catholic superstition and corruption became a conflict between contending Protestant groups. The more liberal Protestants used the same polemic against the more conservative Protestants. And by the time you get to people like Draper and White, you start seeing secularists, um, free thinkers, uh, and atheists at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century who takes this narrative and uses it across the board against all religious traditions. Maybe we can finish up by bringing this to the local church level. So if, if a pastor is listening or just your you know regular lay person uh, and they want to know why this should matter to them, why this is something they should spend more time thinking about and studying, what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I get this question a lot. And sometimes, I, honestly, I, I don't know what to say because um, it's such a complicated issue. And, you know, as a historian, we're, we're trained not to... Uh, kind of pass judgment on what's going on. But if, if, if I had to say something, I would actually go back to another um, theologian uh, earlier in, in the century. Um, you know, this, this conflict, this, where the conflict lies, this kind of revisionist history that I've, I've developed <clears throat> is part of what Richard Niebuhr called uh, the enduring problem. Uh, as he put it in his his book, uh, Christ and Culture. Probably many of you listeners have heard of it. <clears throat> the enduring problem is this many-sided debate about the relations of Christianity and civilization, which is by no means a new one, right? And Christian perplexity in this area has been perennial, has been a problem, uh, an enduring one, throughout all Christian uh, centuries. Now, Niebuhr had five categories, right? He had one, Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ in culture and paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. In the history of Christianity, in the history of Christianity and science, we see various formulations of these categories, perhaps even combinations, come into, come into play. The first way... Christ against culture is actually is exemplified in Tertullian. You know, this is Christ against culture. They are two different things. They are in opposition to one another. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Nothing, says Tertullian, right? The opposite view is of Christ of culture. That is, when Christianity and culture come so close together that they really... There's no way to separate them. They are completely made one. And clearly, clearly, Draper and White are part of this group. There they are the Christ of culture group. Science or modernity comes in and kind of swallows up Christianity whole. The final view laid out in Niebuhr's Christ and Culture is Christ, the transformer of culture. And this view says that the church... Christ, Christianity, is in the world to transform the world, to convert the world. Uh, of course, in the early church, uh, St. Augustine, you have kind of the primary example of the, the Christ, the transformer of culture. During the Protestant Reformation, I think John Calvin is an example of this. You know, both St. Augustine and, and Calvin had this notion that all truth is God's truth. We are called to bring all human learning research, discovery to bear on the kind of fundamental questions of life. And wherever we discover that truth, 
we ought to use it for the glory of God. So in this kind of Augustinian sense, the life of reason, the intellectual life, kind of life we're all kind of striving for, it kind of reoriented and redirected by giving it this kind of new principle. The kind of redeemed reason begins with faith in God and love of the order which God had put into all creation. So there's there's room within this approach, I think, for the thought that mathematics, logic, the natural sciences, even the fine arts and technology, whatever we do, whatever our talents are, may all become kind of instruments for the glory of God. And what's interesting is that Niebuhr concludes his study by saying, I cannot choose one above the other. Each one has something to be said for itself. Um, I, it's, it's, it's hard to find. I, I myself, theologically, uh, find myself theologically with the last view, you know, Christ the transformer of culture, not because I'm, I'm a Calvinist, but because that just seems to jive mostly with the biblical, biblical worldview, right? Often, though, I find myself emotionally agreeing with the first view, Christ against culture, uh, because the world looks so bad. <laughs> and I, do, I don't see much conversion. I don't see much repentance or transformation happening. So like Niebuhr, I, I cannot give a final answer. I think, I think there's kind of, we have to look for kind of a combination of the two. And hopefully with this kind of revisionist view of the relationship between science and religion or this revisionist view of the conflict thesis, we see it not as this battle, this warfare going on between what scientists do and what theologians do, but it's something within the church itself. I'm, I'm trying to bring the conversation back within uh, the history of Christianity, uh, within this kind of theological discussion. Uh, it's always been that, in, in my view. It's always been a debate within the church. And unfortunately, we kind of let let go of it at the, at the, at, at the end. We, we, we've allowed the secularists and the atheists to kind of take this, this, this debate this ugly debate between Christians, and now they're using it against all, all religious traditions. So hopefully looking at it from kind of the more worldview perspective, a worldview analysis, just like Niebuhr did in his own book, we can, we can find a better way to, to have the conversation about what, what's happening in science, what's happening with the latest discoveries in science, and what's happening in, within the church. Yeah, man. Well, this has been... Great, and I think super helpful overview. So what I want to tell listeners is, uh, number one, go check out the book because I think you're going to enjoy it. You write in a way that is easy to follow and it's easy to read. And then I think it's just a fun and interesting topic, and it has a lot of important bearings. So, I mean, I think me growing up, I mean, this was these sort of narratives were pretty popular. Um, so just trying to understand mm. them is, I think, just helpful and interesting in and of itself, as well as you, you have a website, don't you? Yeah, I haven't I haven't kept up with it. <laughs> Working teaching high school kids is very very time consuming. So it's been uh, about a year since I've updated it. So yeah, um, but I do have um, another another book in the works that uh, if I can yeah, plug absolutely. in plug it in. It's well recently in October um, I had a book published with uh, David Hutchings. Um, co-author we've worked on it together it's kind of a more general popular uh history of science and religion and it takes 
certain episodes of conflict that Draper and, and White um, listed in their own narratives, and we kind of trace the origins of those ideas. You know, Draper and, and White did not come up with these ideas. They did not uh, just fall out of the sky, right? They they kind of drew it from, from a tradition. So David Hutchings and I, uh, we published that book with OUP um, in October, and it's titled A Popes and Unicorns of popes and unicorns. So if you're, no, my, my own book, which was published in late 2019, is, is, it's, it's approachable, I think, but it is kind of technical and it's speaking specifically to specialists in the field. Whereas this book with David Hutchings, it's broader. It, I think anybody can read it and they don't need to be, they don't need to have a background in, in science and religion uh, studies to understand what's going on. And currently, I'm working on a book on the rise of biblical criticism, higher criticism, and the science and religion debate. And hopefully that will come out in, in a couple of years. But it's, it's something that is, is it's super important because if you look at White's own book, the very last chapter of his, of his massive uh, two-volume magnum opus was a history of biblical criticism. So it's really important. You have to ask your question, well, why did White include the very last chapter of his book, Tracing the Origins of Biblical Criticism? It's the longest chapter in his book as well. So why was that so important? And if you look at some of these scientific naturalists like Tyndall and Huxley and Spencer and even Charles Darwin, they were all influenced by the rising tide of higher criticism, biblical criticism. And that affected their fate and that, that, that affected how they saw the relationship between theology and science. So uh, that's the next book, and uh, I'd love for you guys to read that as well yeah, and check it that out. That sounds so, great. Uh, I'm not. I'm... Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks, number one, for joining us. Number two, as always, I encourage all of our listeners to check out your work. So I'll link to it in the show notes. So if you're listening to this episode, you can just click the links and head directly there. Uh, I think it's great stuff. And I'm now you're talking about this higher criticism book. I mean, now. Can you write that next year? Because I'd, I'd love to read it. Um, <laughs> so, Absolutely. whenever it's done, we'll definitely have to circle back and talk about that. And I mean, of popes and unicorns, can you get better titles than that? I don't think so. So, <laughs> everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.